Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A new year, but many of the same issues waiting on appropriations. Uh, The continuing fallout from the January 6th insurrection, Russia's buildup of troops on the Ukraine border continues as Moscow moves to prop up uh, the dictator of another former Soviet Republic, Kazakhstan, from collapsing. And Chinese Premier Xi Jinping faces a nail-biter of an election as his headaches multiply among them rising COVID cases and a real estate collapse that goes well beyond the Evergrande scandal. Joining us today to look at the year ahead and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the Senior Advisor of the Bipartisan Cyberspace Solarium Commission, who is the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who among his many affiliations is associated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And be sure to tune in to our special coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium next week, sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Technologies. We'll be interviewing senior leaders, including Vice Admiral Bill Galinas, the commander of the U.S. Naval Sea System Command, and our Cavus Ships podcast, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, will take a deeper daily dive into the show with gavel-to-gavel coverage. Don't miss it. And also check out the downlink uh, with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes us uh, through a thoughtful weekly uh, look uh, at all things space. Everybody, Welcome all. Happy New Year. And thanks so very much again uh, for joining us. Uh, Michael, uh, it's a it's a new year. Uh, and uh, and yet some of the issues are, are the same, right? A lot of overhang, as we discussed in our last show of the year. And I'm glad that uh, the, the four of you are joining us again. Uh, start us off, right? We have an NDAA, a National Defense Authorization Act that the president uh, has signed into law, but all eyes are on whether or not we're going to have a full year continuing resolution or some form of agreement. Uh, Representative Rosa DeLauro, the House Appropriations Chair, uh, has said that a $740 billion appropriation is possible, which mas- matches the NDAA figure. Uh, but inflation is going up, effectively taking as much as $5 billion dollars. Uh, from the department's uh, spending power on a monthly basis. So that will be money that will have to be made up somehow. Where are we now and how does inflation get covered, uh, given that it is likely to be a longer and more lasting issue, right? I mean, no administration wants to write down in any document, we're projecting nearly 7% inflation, but alas, that's where we are. So um, I think there's a couple of things that need to happen before uh, appropriations really gets on, on track. Uh, and, and as we mentioned at our last show last year, there was a little bit of optimism that conversations were happening on, on uh, an omnibus and that has continued into this year. Uh, but you know, first, uh, I think what the Democrats want to focus on uh, are is voting rights. And I think they're going to spin their wheels a lot, especially in the Senate, on voting rights legislation that's not going to go anywhere because um, of the filibuster. And Manchin continues to make it clear that he is not in favor of making changes to the filibuster. So the Senate's going to spend some time on that. Uh, and, and also, it looks like some Senate Democrats are working with some Senate Republicans on something related but different, some electoral reform. It changes to the Electoral Count Act to clarify the vice president's role in certifying elections so we don't repeat what happened uh, a year ago yesterday. Um, and then I think from there, there'll have to be determination on, on BBB uh, whether they are going to move forward on something. Now, they can't even agree right now whether negotiations are taking place. Uh, you know, Schumer indicates that they are. Manchin indicates that they're not. But Manchin has kind of indicated that he uh, might be interested in re, re, uh, visiting the climate and child care provisions in the bill. But uh, that's still a long way to go. And it's still questionable whether Kirsten Cinema would agree to the changes that Manchin would agree to. So I think those things need, need to be sorted out. Now, in the meantime, uh, there is some optimism on getting an omnibus done, uh, but I don't think 
that'll be done by the time the CR expires on February 18th. Leahy indicated he thinks it could get done, but Shelby has indicated that it won't get done. Now, you mentioned, obviously, the optimism on, on the defense number, that the appropriators will agree to match the authorizers on the higher number for defense, but that's still just a 5% increase um, over where we were last year. The non-defense domestic discretionary is still 13% higher, and that's um, a showstopper for Republicans, because that makes the bill right now $1.5 trillion, and they said they're not going to pass a bill that big. At the same time, there is talk of adding some other things to that bill, uh, some disaster relief for the tornadoes uh, in, in Kentucky, and there's talk of another COVID relief package in light of the Omicron variant, especially to help restaurants and other businesses whose money has expired from the last package. So if they are going to add some of that into the Omni, they are going to have to find other cuts in the non-defense uh, domestic discretionary, which I believe they will. Now, there's also talk of a two-year budget deal, uh, which would be fantastic if they could put that together. Shelby, uh, Senator Shelby is pushing that so you don't have the same problem uh, next year. So we have the numbers agreed to. And that'd be interesting to see because that could possibly undercut the president in advance of his budget coming out because it looks like his budget is going to be late. It may not come out now until mid to late March. Uh, and hopefully the Omni is done by then. Uh, and if it is done and his budget deal is done, that would have set some of the numbers ahead of the president's budget coming out. Uh, and uh, right, I mean, and, and the uh, and sources in the administration have said, right, the inflation figure uh, is one of the reasons why they're looking at this and trying to figure out how uh, they're going to uh, do this. At least if you if you if you listen to sources, uh, Dove, let me bring you into the conversation. You wrote a piece uh, today uh, in the Hill. Congress must limit the impact of temporary budgets on America's defenses. I'm sorry, this has been broken record crap from all of us in national security uh, for a long time. I talked to members uh, at the at the Reagan Forum. Uh, and it was uh, astonishing the number of House Armed Services Committee members who were sort of lamenting that, you know, other members don't seem to understand the real implications and the impact of continuing resolutions. You were a former Pentagon comptroller. First, tell the audience again, given that we do have members of Congress who listen to, to us and we're not trying to be discharitable or put anybody down. But really, this is really up to you guys to resolve. Uh, but also, how does the administration cope and figure out and what does Congress have to do? given this inflation number could take as much as $60 billion of buying power away from the department, right? So it may not be $740 billion at the end of the day. It may be closer to $690 billion in buying power. Go ahead, Doug. Well, let me start off by saying that uh, continuing resolution prevents the DOD from starting new programs or from ramping up programs that were meant to be ramped up, but uh, because of the CR, are held at previous year levels. And it generally forces the comptroller, Mike McCord in this case, who's gonna be testifying next Tuesday on this subject together with senior military leaders to uh, move monies around to the extent that Congress lets him move monies around. Uh, and what they wind up doing is delaying some training, which is bad for readiness, uh, delaying some other starts, uh, and cramp, cramming everything into the end of the year to the extent that you have a half a year or nine months uh, to essentially do the work of 12. Now, it's bad enough in, in what you might call normal times, but these are not normal times. We are deeply concerned about China pushing ahead of us in all kinds of high-tech spheres. And instead of allowing new starts, which might allow us to keep our lead over the Chinese, we can't do those. Um, if we need to ramp up programs so that we have more capability in East Asia, and oh, by the way, you know, <laughs> in Europe as well, given what Mr. Putin's trying to do, uh, we can't do that either. Uh, and this has been going on year after year. Um, the last uh, 10 or so years, there was only one year where there wasn't a CR. In other words, every year there are delays. Um, there, there's an argument that, well, DOD has gotten used to it, but it hasn't gotten used to it. You can't get used to no new starts. You can't get used to no ramp ups. And so we're really shooting ourselves in the foot with this. And there are ways to get around it. Uh, I've suggested perhaps uh, one thing that the Congress could do is uh, increase the number of what they call legislative anomaly proposals. In other words, exceptions that allow you to start or allow you to ramp up or whatever. Uh, generally speaking, in the last few years, when DOD has asked for these exceptions, Congress gives them only about 2% of them. Why not ramp it up to 25%? Uh, 
Another way is simply to cut out the uh, defense appropriation from all others and say, look, we cannot afford to fall behind. And yes, we'll continue to debate everything else till the cows come home, but we're going to pass a defense appropriation. That's a more radical approach, but we need to do something radical. We can't keep on going on the way we are. Um, Michael, is there any sense that members are open to any form of radicalness about addressing this? Look, I, I think those points are spot on. And, uh, and I think things used to be <clears throat> that way uh, decades ago. I mean, the defense appropriations bill was always considered a must-pass bill. Uh, and you know, when I first started in this business, we passed it uh, before the end of the fiscal year. Uh, and then the last time we had a year-long CR for everything else uh, was back in 2007 when the House flipped in 2006. But that was not for defense. Defense was the exception that that bill passed and everything else was a CR for the full year. Uh, I think that the politics dictate otherwise uh, today. The, the progressives uh, in the Democratic caucus will never allow a defense bill to pass unless other appropriations bills are passed as well. It's going to be continue to be a hostage. Um, I want to get to the year ahead now and uh, sort of move through all of the big issues, bring Patrick and Mark in, into the conversation as well. But I want to go to January 6th uh, very briefly. Obviously, yesterday was the one-year commemoration of the in in insurrection or the riot or whatever you want to call it. The political fallout uh, continues. Uh, those members of Congress who either voted to impeach the former president for his role uh, in what happened and, and for his efforts to try to interfere uh, for the first time in American history with a peaceful transfer uh, of, of power. It was unsuccessful. That it was unsuccessful does not mean it's not problematic, especially all of the uh, smaller moves uh, the former president is making to try to actually allow what has been a nonpartisan uh, election process to actually be politicized and have folks who can intervene and stop outcomes uh, that they don't like. I, th I think we can all agree as Americans that's potentially problematic. Uh, the president gave a, a forceful speech. Uh, Michael, I want to kind of quickly go around the horn with everybody on, on what the implications of this are before we go to China, Russia, uh, and uh, Iran, and, and other issues that we think will be uh, important over the coming year. But I, I wanted to start with you, Michael. I mean, on our year-end show, you said that the most underreported story was actually January 6th uh, from your uh, standpoint. Um, how is this issue going to color the year, um, given that a, a large number of Americans now have a fundamentally different view of what actually happened, driven in part by members of Congress that have driven of Republican members of Congress, right, who were not around for the commemorations uh, yesterday, I should point out, right? I mean, people are responding to what their leaders tell them, and their leaders are telling them because those leaders are worried that Donald Trump will primary them or get them out of office, as has been the case with Kinzinger, uh, Cheney, and everybody else who has opposed them, right? Go back to Jeff Flake and anybody else. How, how, how is this going to shape the legislative agenda and, and just sort of stuff more broadly in Washington, I suppose. So I don't really see it shaping much of the legislative agenda. And, and I will say too, I mean, we are in an election year, it's 2022. So Republicans are focused on winning elections this year. And this is not a winning item for them. Uh, so they're not gonna talk about it. They're gonna talk about the security uh, lapses that happened in the Capitol and how to prevent this from happening again. But, you know, look, the election's 10 months from now. And uh, while I think, the president gave a very forceful speech yesterday, and it was important that we commemorate and, and recognize what happened yesterday. Um, 10 months from now, no one's going to care. I mean, and I think, um, well, I wouldn't say no one's going to care, but people are back in the corners. People's minds are made up. This is not a pocketbook issue uh, for, for people when they come to vote uh, in 10 months from now. Um, and I think the Democrats are going to fight amongst themselves whether this is an issue that they should be using in the election anyway. Uh, because Trump's not on the ballot, you know, in, in 22. Uh, so I think that they feel they need to steer away from this and talk about the successes that they have had. Uh, and this is going to, it, and this will be an issue in the news, I think. And this, the commission, uh, the, the January 6th committee on the Hill is going to go right to the end. There's a lot of work for them to do, and they've got to do it quickly because at the end of this year, if the House does flip, the Republicans will disband this committee. But Biden's still president for three more years, and his Justice Department will have a lot of work to do on this. And I think that we probably will see more criminal referrals coming out. Uh, from from the committee, uh, a lot more information coming out, but I think a lot of it then is going to rely on Merrick Garland and his Justice Department as to what actions uh, they're going to take. But in the end, I don't think this really moves the needle much when it comes to the election uh, next uh, this November. 
Um, let me uh, go to you, uh, Patrick. You've been patiently uh, waiting and bring you in. Uh, there's a little bit of a nail biter. Uh, I'm, I'm joking entirely, of course, right? I mean, Xi Jinping is going to be reelected uh, for another uh, term, but he does face challenges and problems. And the kind of challenges and problems that has a tendency of driving authoritarians to do things externally to shore up their base, as, as we've seen, right? Vladimir Putin, it's right out of the, the autocrats uh, playbook. Um, at the same time, there are divisions in the United States. And there's this sense that the relationship between Beijing and Washington will remain at relative stasis until Republicans win, in which case Republicans that were unwilling to force uh, Donald Trump's hand will be much more eager to force Biden's hand, thereby exacerbating uh, the relationship. And of course, you know, Beijing always likes to take advantage of domestic uh, division in the United States or some way to make the case that actually the Chinese system is better. How does this next year play out between Beijing and the United States? Well, if Beijing has its way, uh, the narrative will start with a wonderful Winter Olympics. Uh, it'll be punctuated over the, uh, the spring and summer by new milestones, such as uh, feats in outer space. Uh, and then it'll end uh, with that capstone 20th Party Congress in which Xi Jinping uh, you know, begins a third uh, five-year term as head of the Communist Party. The problem with that narrative is a reality. Um, you know, it, not only is the economic strains on China showing, there are pay cuts in municipalities throughout China right now. That kind of belt tightening is not going to be sufficient to deal with their economic woes, but they're in a period of prolonged, subdued uh, rate of economic growth right now. COVID is still a big problem. They're actually having to have uh, lockdowns in places like Xi'an, uh, and uh, some terrible uh, human uh, stories coming out of tragedies out of out of the uh, the lockdowns uh, where you know pregnant women not able to uh, sort of get care because they didn't have a COVID test and uh, you know the baby dies. Um, then you have international pressure uh, ramping up, and I think there's no better sign of that than the uh, two plus two Security Consultative Committee meeting that just happened virtually between Japan and the United States in the last 24 hours. Uh, in which um, it was clear through a full-throated uh, expression of the concern over China, um, which has not really been part of past two plus two joint statements, that China can no longer play the history card the way it used to play historically in, in past decades. Whenever Japan wanted to do more on defense, China would you know, rattle the history card and say, you don't want Japan remilitarizing. Well, right now, what Japan is doing with the United States in terms of moving toward joint strategies, thinking about uh, hypersonics and space cooperation and missile cooperation, um, you know, this is actually reassuring, frankly, to many in the region, certainly to US and Japan, uh, about standing up to China, because China's actions are what is driving not only this, but also driving other countries like Australia and Japan, which just signed this week, just formally signed their own reciprocal access agreement, which will facilitate something uh, as, as will AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US agreement, um, joint basing and rotational uh, operations and forces uh, getting together and working together uh, in ways they haven't in the past. So these things are really on China. They're on China's book. And yet, if you go back to how China sees it, don't take you know, the Hudson or CSIS or RAND report, uh, you know, annual report about what's happening. Go to the intelligence community's think tank in China, Kicker, the China Institute of Contemporary International Relations that many of us have dealt with in the past, uh, and look at, look at the uh, annual uh, strategic survey they just put out, um, signed by the president, Yan Peng, um, who, who extols China's wonderful, fantastic, error-free uh, government. And then it refers to America as sort of you know, yesterday's story. It, it, late autumn is what uh, you know, Yan Peng says about America, and it's much worse than that. Uh, it's a political warfare document. It's not a balanced intelligence assessment. So China's you know, either in denial, uh, which it partly is, it's partly overconfident, um, which it partly is, but it's also just also practicing good old-fashioned political warfare. It's trying to move ahead despite all these obstacles that it faces. Uh, and why don't you tell the audience briefly what the economic woes facing China are, right? Because there's this sense of looking at China as this massive economic engine, and you know, even a bad year in China is, is a growth year, whereas actually what we're seeing are structural and somewhat more profound 
and whether those domestic problems actually make the country more or less dangerous on the international scene. I mean, the Chinese have done everything they could to actually hurt themselves with their rhetoric, with their actions, right? Whereas she has been granted this lifetime term effectively to get Taiwan is among the other things that is on his remit. And it, and it seems like it, it just makes it harder and paints him into a corner. Talk to us about the problems they're facing and what the causes are and whether or not it makes them more dangerous or not. Well, very briefly, Vago, and at this kind of broad strategic level, uh, China was poised to enter a new phase of economic growth, but it was going to require political um, reform in democratization and structural reform. Rather than go in that direction, China went in the opposite direction under Xi Jinping, right? More suppression of freedom, um, you know, centralization, um, and uh, heavy duty industrial policy. And all of these things are not only forestalling the kind of structural reform that's needed, it's suffocating the kind of reform that's needed. And so let's take the example of um, the property markets where half of all China's economic growth in the past decade have occurred. Um, it's it's in heavily indebted and Evergrande is, is, the, is the poster child of this uh, in heavy indebtedness. Uh, and it's a drain, it's a drag on, on China's economy. And so now China can talk about 5% economy economic growth per year, but we can be very skeptical of those numbers, not believe any of the numbers. And while it will continue to attract investment, to be sure, um, it's not all dire for China, uh, that rate of growth for China is now going to be below 5% a year from here to the future. And, and, I, and I see that dropping. And I just think those headwinds um, constrain everything that the party in Beijing wants to do because it wants its promise so much in this decade. And here it is only 2022. And that economic outlook already is far more subdued than it was just a couple of years ago. Uh, Mark, I want to bring you into the conversation uh, and, and get you to weigh in on anything that's been said uh, today. Thanks very much for your uh, patience. Um, let's uh, start with Vladimir Putin. Um, obviously, NATO, the United States, its allies and partners are working to dissuade or deter, um, I, which I don't know if either one of them will, will happen, uh, from, uh, to keep Vladimir Putin from doing anything that he wants to do in, in Ukraine on his own uh, schedule. Uh, clearly, he's made a whole series of unrealistic demands. And yet, mean as this has been going on, um, he, uh, Putin has gotten involved to prop up uh, the leader of Kazakhstan, um, right? And the Kazakh president uh, has said, well, we're, we're going to shoot people on site, uh, for example, if they demonstrate, and many dozens of, um, of uh, Kazakhs uh, who have been uh, protesting, starting with gas prices, but then broadening to all uh, manner of other uh, uh, grievances. Uh, Putin did the same thing in Belarus, uh, and there's, uh, you know, two views of this, right? Whether uh, this is good for Putin or potentially bad for Putin, right? Because there are a lot of Russians who are not particularly happy with him either, which is why he is systemically cracking down in the country. From your standpoint, looking at this, what do you, what do you think are sort of the, the, the interesting themes and how you think this story is going to evolve over the coming year? Uh, well, thanks, Vago. With regard to Russia right now, I would say that the, um, the issue in Kazakhstan, while it might be more human rights serious than the issue in Ukraine at this moment. It's not more geopolitically serious. Um, you know, it is truly part of Russia's near abroad. It was the last Soviet Republic to break, um, break away. And, uh, and no one else really has a desire to be intricately involved with it. So uh, I really think that's not as, as serious a geopolitical issue as Ukraine. Ukraine, on the other hand, while still part of Russia's near abroad, is part of Eastern Europe. And that's it. It makes it uh, it makes it much more problematic for for how Russia approaches it. Look, I I, I still tend to believe it's it, it's unlikely that they would do straight kinetic operations in Ukraine. There's a, there's a lot of reasons um, why I think you know I, I think economically and I think just the the kind of um, you know, quagmire he might get himself into. I'm not sure. Russia would do that, but I, Putin will do that. But I do think he'll do gray zone operations. And I think, you know, he can damage Ukrainian critical infrastructure with cyber attacks. Um, he's done that in the past. I think he'll be a little more subtle about it. He won't, he'll be more careful about having cascading effects that go into Western Europe as, as happened with NotPetya. 
but a cyber attacks on a critical infrastructure, and then probably most importantly, disinformation operations. And the whole goal here would be undermining the credibility of the Ukrainian government, kind of softening them up. Uh, and then obviously, depending on the response, if there's some kind of escalatory or aggressive response, he could step it up to having uh, kinetic forces, maybe not under a Russian flag, getting moving into um, into uh, 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 rebel-held areas of uh, eastern Ukraine. But uh, to me, I think he's going to start with these gray zone operations and hang out there. Uh, it keeps a lot of pressure on the United States and Europe. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you right now, one of the things it's doing is it's blocking the Nord Stream 2 um, sanctions that were going to happen. A, a whole lot of Democrats who had no trouble uh, sanctioning Nord Stream 2 under President Trump are suddenly like, well, you know, I'm not sure we want to do this under President um, uh, do this to President Biden by taking away this tool. And uh, and I think they're going to vote down. Um, we won't get 60 votes for the much needed Nord Stream 2 sanctions um, that uh, Senator Cruz is, is putting forward. So I'm, I'm hoping uh, that, uh, you know, that we can combine this to gray zone operations and that the United States is able with its European allies to respond in a way that doesn't escalate the situation, but also pushes back on on Putin's aspirations. And, and do you want to weigh in at all on what's going on in uh, Asia? Obviously, you were the J3 at U.S. Uh, Indo-Pacific uh, Command. Uh, know the theater uh, and, and uh, consider uh, Lung Aquilino, uh, the Indo-Pacific commander, as both a, a former colleague, uh, but somebody who you still uh, talk and advise. Uh, what's the next year going to hold for the command American strategy and presence? Obviously, the administration is working on uh, its Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, Kurt Campbell, uh, who is an in instrumental player uh, in that uh, on the National Security Council, is going to be speaking at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So folks are looking at a little bit of a preview. Uh, what, do you, what do you think the administration is going to be doing on the other side of the world um, to shore up America's deterrence and alliance-wide capabilities? Well, first, I, I would, uh, Vago, I'd attach myself to everything Patrick said there about the challenges China's facing. I think he, he hit it spot on. I, I do think there, I, I'll confine myself to the kind of military aspects right now and say there are a lot of things we can do to improve our deterrent capability, you know, the, the, the effectiveness of our deterrence, uh, again, you know, with China and, and, uh, and our ability to shape their behavior. Um, and they're not terrifically expensive. They just, are you know they they have you know, fiscally expensive they they just sometimes have uh, uh, they it takes you know it risks um, irritating the Chinese but I mean it, clearly it's time to do FMF funding for Taiwan similar to what we do for another beleaguered democracy Israel right we give about four billion dollars a year to Israel and FMF we should be giving about you know between one and two billion a year to Taiwan on a sliding scale depending on how they increase their own defense spending. They spend uh, above 2%, which is very good for democracy, but not the kind of between 2.5 and 3% I think they need to spend. Uh, and so FMF funding would be one. I think that we have to, we could start doing joint exercises with the Taiwan's air and naval, where you don't have to have a footprint in Taiwan, but you do exercises that <clears throat> the Chinese will study closely and they'll understand the impact. Right now, US and Taiwan forces, if we were thrown into something, would it best be deconflicted from each other? If we could, if we could make ourselves more coordinated or integrated, that would really have an impact on, on Chinese thinking. And, and finally, there are some acquisition things we could do about, you know, starting to ramp up towards three submarines a year, buying more long-range anti-ship cruise missiles, those kind of things that we could do. So this kind of mix of things, along with economic and diplomatic uh, efforts, is how we be, need to begin to, to posture ourselves so that China is deterred from taking action. And then in the unlikely case that deterrence fails, you know, that the United States is in a position to more rapidly uh, you know, uh, win any kind of fight that we find ourselves in. Uh, Dove, uh, let me bring you in the conversation and, and, and sort of get your, your sense on, uh, you know, sort of your geostrategic sense on all of this and how you think maybe domestic political dynamics, um, right? I mean, how you think dynamics in Beijing, in Moscow, uh, in Brussels, and indeed in Washington, right, among those four are going to push pull us over the coming year? Well, first of all, I, I want to agree with what was just said about Taiwan, and I totally agree with what Patrick said as well. Uh, it seems to me that 
first of all, the Chinese economy has all the, the Chinese government has always overstated, uh, quite honestly, uh, their rate of growth. I remember when I was out there a few years ago listening to a senior Chinese finance official who admitted that uh, he wouldn't, of course, publicly admit it, but to a small group of us, he admitted that they were overstating their GDP by a good 1%. And that was in good times. Uh, these are not good times uh, for China's economy. There are some things we could do uh, economically. We ought to go right back into the TPP, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which is this massive free trade agreement. But here, domestic issues do come into play because the, the labor unions uh, are dead set against it. And so uh, that's why nothing has been done about that, even though it was Trump who pulled out of TPP. And at the time, he was bitterly criticized for it. Um, so, yes, there are things we can continue to do uh, with Taiwan. Uh, the FMF idea, maybe not a couple of billion for a start, uh, but certainly a few hundred million to see how they respond to that. It'll get China's attention. And oh, by the way, we should be saying a lot more about what we could do to China non-kinetically. We worry about how China could do stuff to us and to our infrastructure. Well, we could do quite a bit to them as well. And given that their economy is on a lot uh, uh, softer ground than ours is, uh, they'll be hurt a lot more than that. And quite honestly, the, the Communist Party cannot afford for their economy to be disrupted. So I, I think there are more things we could do and say with regard to China. As for uh, Russia, uh, look, Putin has sent in about 2,500 troops. They're not even all his. Uh, that's, not, that's not even a dent in what China, uh, Russia's capabilities are. Uh, he can continue to drive other, uh, other objectives, particularly in Ukraine, uh, without any real uh, impact or, or deficit as a result of what he's doing in Kazakhstan. And as for Ukraine, I mean, I have said and I continue to say that uh, we should simply not be uh, playing defense on this. Uh, he is running the pass pattern and we don't know which way that pattern is going to go. We have to go on the offense. And I do believe that if we mounted a massive airlift to Ukraine, which is what the Ukrainians need, uh, coupled perhaps with a promise that Ukraine would not go into the eastern provinces, uh, that uh, are currently sort of self-declared independent. And oh, by the way, Putin's got 75 to 100,000 troops to guarantee against that. Uh, I think Putin will back away. Uh, and if he wants to play the gray zone game with cyber, well, we can do that just as, as well, if not better than he can. So it seems to me that taking a more uh, active position on this will push him back. Uh, but to say, well, if you do it, don't cross this red line. Uh, remember how well red lines went for Mr. Obama. And now a word from our sponsors. Our technology coverage is sponsored by GM Defense and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Um, Michael, um, you put your uh, hand up. Um, talk to us a little bit about your views of TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and what you wanted to add. Yeah, I think Dove uh, is, is spot on about uh, TPP. Uh, the problem now is that it's too late. I think that, you know, President Trump um, made, a, I think, a big mistake by pulling us out because that was something that really was aimed at <clears throat> reducing uh, Chinese influence in the region and reducing other countries' dependence on China in the region. Uh, and it would have included 12 countries, which would be 40 percent of, of the world economy. However, you talked earlier about underreported stories. I think one major underreported story is the fact that China has entered into essentially the TPP. They've entered into an agreement uh, called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, uh, which encompasses 15 countries in the region, seven of which were supposed to be in the agreement with us, including strong allies like Japan, Australia, uh, and New Zealand are now in an economic trade agreement with the Chinese, which will increase Chinese influence in the region and increase the, their dependence on the Chinese. And it also, I think, causes a dilemma for us when it comes to our foreign policy and our weapons sales, because we see regularly how we are very critical of other countries because of the economic ties they may have to China, or the business doing with China. Well, we get a hold now, Australia, uh, uh, Japan, New Zealand, to those same kind of standards. 
uh, I, I doubt it. Uh, what, I, what I think is really extraordinary about this uh, is not to give uh, you, uh, Patrick, or, or, or you, Mark, uh, hives, uh, you know, by, by talking about it, but we had gotten all of our allies and partners to agree to our labor standards, our environmental standards. Uh, and, and what's astonishing is we sort of gave up that position we could have resuscitated it under this administration. And, and the administration has chosen, uh, again, for a lot of reasons, not to do that. Uh, and again, given, given just a tremendous opportunity for the Chinese to get in there uh, and, and to, um, to cause trouble. Um, Dove, uh, is there anything you want to add uh, regarding the January uh, 6th uh, issue uh, before we move on? Because I do want to get um, a couple of other issues that I'd like to tackle, but wanted to give you an opportunity to weigh and, and to give all of you an opportunity to weigh in on that as well uh, as, as, as you would like, because I think that this is a, a sad gift that keeps on giving. And a part of the problem is I'm not sure whether ultimately the folks who may have perpetrated this beyond the low level, I, I don't have, I remain to be convinced whether anybody who was a senior high level perpetrator in this to include the former president, are going to be brought to account meaningfully through the legal system. And let me put it that way. I, I have a significant amount of skepticism, but alas. I, well, I look, uh, you know, the, the speech was a fiery speech. And, uh, you know, the, the media that normally tends uh, to the left uh, loved it. Uh, CNN had nothing else on pretty much the whole day and MSNBC the same and New York Times, Washington Post, whatever. The real question is, what was Biden trying to achieve? He clearly played to his base, but in many ways he was doing what Donald Trump did, which essentially is play to your base and the hell with everybody else. If he was trying to convince the half of the country that supports Trump, that they should not support Trump, this was not the way to do it, simply because all he did was reiterate what they know, these folks know, uh, the other side keeps saying anyway. So uh, I don't think he moved the needle one millimeter. Uh, and uh, I think it was Mike who said earlier on that it's not going to make all that much of a difference. Uh, and I believe that the more he hammers at this in the way that he did yesterday, the more he's going to lose the people that he's trying to get. Uh, and uh, yes, he's got a base, uh, but whether that base is big enough to get him or anybody else reelected, of course, is an open question. I, I think the most fascinating element of this is that Donald Trump is unrespondable to um, ultimately, if you criticize him, it makes him stronger in his base. And there's nothing that he will do within his base to weaken him, as opposed to Biden, where Democrats are turning on Biden, right? Moderates are turning on Biden because he's gone too far to the left. The left has turned on Biden because he hasn't gone uh, uh, farther, uh, further to the left. And, and so that, I think, pretty much sums up. Well, no, there, there's, a there's a difference here, Vago. The, the left, the Democratic left, has nowhere else to go. And uh, that had, you know, the one who understood that best was Bill Clinton, uh, and which is why he won as, as well as he did both, you know, the, particularly the second time. And to some extent, Obama understood this as well. The left simply has nowhere to go. On the other hand, what the, what the moderate Democrats need are to win over the moderate Republicans and the independents. And the arguments that are being put that these folks have heard over and over and over again about Trump, that won't do it. The issue isn't Trump. The issue is Trump's voters. And all you need is to pick off about 10% of those and you do real well in the next couple of elections. Yesterday's speech did not do that. Uh, I, by the way, I'm, I am not by any means disagreeing with you. I believe that that is right. The, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the leadership of the party or some elements of the leadership of the party, as well as some elements of the, of the progressive far left base, believe there is no middle and you don't curry to them, which I think is highly problematic and is, gonna, is what's going to lead to the shellacking. At the end of the day, there are people who may disdain and not like Donald Trump and may not like Republicans as a, as, as a, as a consequence, but they're also going to vote their pocketbooks. There is inflation. Uh, there are other things. Mark, you know, before we were starting, right, I mean, the president has moved uh, far to the left 
and there are people in the middle who are, who are not going to be comfortable with that, right? Um, and and ultimately, uh, the party will pay a price uh, for it. Um, let me uh, let me go to a little bit of a lightning round because we're running uh, down on time. Mark, uh, let me go to you, uh, and then uh, Patrick, I'll come to you, and and uh, uh, Michael, I think we might end with you. Uh, Mark, you're uh, still a senior advisor. You were executive director of the Solarium uh, Commission, uh, and and it really ranks as one of the most successful bipartisan um, efforts to drive significant legislation that has been uh, well overdue. I mean, if there could be a bust uh, or a plaque uh, erected uh, to this organization, it should in part because of the extraordinary uh, role that you've played in this, but of course the, the co-chairs, uh, Angus King, Senator King of Maine, uh, as well as Mike Gallagher, the Republican from Wisconsin. And Senator King has said that it may be time for the Solarium Commission to become uh, a uh, nonprofit uh, in order to sort of foster and, and drive some of these issues. Do you think that the Solarium is actually a template to try to get big things done, uh, not just base closures, but right? Uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, Chairman Reed has talked about the, uh, the view of maybe having a BRAC process to get rid of irrelevant weapon systems. Do you think that Solarium may be a template and a model to get things done. And 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 here, Michael, I'd like to get uh, your your take on that as well. But go ahead, Mark. Uh, thanks, Vago. And you're right. We're um, the Slayer Commission is beginning to is standing down, and a non-government organization with the same leadership, King and Gallagher, and the other seven, uh, seven remaining commissioners uh, leading it. Um, look, Slayer worked for a few reasons. One. Uh, Senator McCain, who was the original authorizer on it, uh, demanded a speedy report. He knew the faster you get a report done, the more legislative cycles you could work that issue in. The second key, and probably the, the biggest one, was that we had four congressional members, and not just any four congressional members, but, but moderate members that were able to work together uh, with Senators King and Sass and, and Representatives Langevin and Gallagher, and, uh, and in the right positions on armed services committees, subcommittee chairman, uh, subcommittee rankings, th these things matter. And then, and then finally, it is a relatively nonpartisan issue. And this is where the problem comes in replicating it. If you have a relatively nonpartisan issue. Now, I'll give you an example. If you put the words, uh, if you take election security, you know, you, you're, if you put the word election into anything, you know, you can put it in front of rainbow unicorn and it becomes partisan. Um, you know, so election security is a, li is a little partisan. But the other 99.9% .9 of the issues we dealt with were nonpartisan. So it's hard, it's a little hard to replicate it, except when you come down to things like, you know, some I, I've seen there's a commission coming up on, on um, how to deal with, with bioweapons and, and things like that. I think these are generally nonpartisan issues that, that, uh, that we can work on. Uh, and then um, finally, there are really good committees at the base of this. The Senate Armed Services Committee, House Armed Services Committee have really good cyber Subcommittee, Senator Rounds, particularly, and Representative Langevin, uh, one Republican, one Democrat, are fantastic. And then the HISGAC, the Homeland Security Committees, and home, home in both the House and Senate, they struggle on a lot of the immigration issues, getting legislation done, but they don't struggle on cyber issues. They get a lot done. So, you know, that kind of leadership would do it. And one other person I'd mentioned, uh, and you're talking about January 6th, is Representative uh, John Katko. Uh, who's the ranking on the Homeland Security, a, a moderate Republican. He's been fantastic and a great leader, probably sponsored as many Solarium le um, legislative proposals as, as most of our members, maybe anyone but Langevin. And so that kind of leadership, nonpartisan leadership is how you get things done. And it's hard to find that in every issue, certainly one about bracking weapon systems. I, I'm afraid parochialism will sneak in pretty rapidly. What parochialism in, in Washington? That's outrageous, uh, Monty. I cannot believe you would you would you would say that. <laughs> uh, uh, Michael, uh, your quick uh, take on that, and I've got a short question uh, for Patrick, and then I have to ask about Iran uh, of Dove uh, because obviously that's going to be a big overhang uh, issue as as well. Go ahead. Um, quick take. Look, I, I agree uh, with Mark, uh, especially his last comment about parochialism. I mean, there's no way uh, that this model could be used uh, to get rid of, uh, of weapon systems and, uh, and platforms. Uh, you know, the, the politics uh, will, will overcome that very quickly. And, you know, look, I think the Cyber Slaring Commission uh, was a great idea and has produced a great report, but it's still very new, very young. And let's, I think the key is to see what in the end gets implemented out of the 80 or so recommendations that, that came out of there. I mean, usually a commission is, is established as a way to make a problem going go away to say, see, look, what we did. And then the report ends up on a shelf for a while. 
I don't think that's going to be the case here, but you know, time time will tell. And, and hopefully, it leads into you know broader discussion, not just cyber, but you know, AI, machine learning, and um, you know, communication and information sharing, uh, which are things that we need to work on uh, to make sure our weapon systems stay ahead of where the Chinese are. I was going to ask you, uh, Patrick, a uh, question on. Um, North Korea, but you talked eloquently about North Korea and that that's going to be an overhang issue as it is. It's, it's a perennial. It's an evergreen. Uh, as our uh, mutual uh, friend uh, Bruce Klingner uh, says, you know, hey, um, you know, he, he will he will be able to ride North Korea into retirement, uh, ultimately, which which is good for his uh, family and sending his kids to college uh, and paying his, his mortgage, uh, sadly. But I wanted to ask you a slightly different uh, question because of the breadth of your experience. I think people who know you know that you're a broader defense strategist, not just an Asia uh, expert. But I wanted to ask you this question. Is the administration's uh, st- strategic uh, documents are going to be out soon? Uh, whether it's the uh, national security strategy, whether it's a national defense strategy uh, from your and, and yet they are being greeted with very much of a yawn even before they're out. Uh, and a lot of debate, you know, uh, you, you talk to people on the inside, they'll say, look, it's only a couple of paragraphs about uh, climate. No, you know, we didn't mention each of the military services very much, but that doesn't mean they don't have an important role. Ultimately, it's Washington. It's about repetition. And the number of times you mention something can suggest what your intentions are, uh, even though there are things that we mention repeatedly and still do nothing about. So I don't know how much I subscribe to that. Is, is you know, what what's your sense and how flat is this going to fall? And what are the implications for the department? Because the department hasn't really been out selling it. So there is really no sense about whether or not we're going to make any of the major muscle movements that everybody says is over overdue, right? I mean, where 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 do you think we are on this? And then, uh, Dove, I want to bring it home and, and get your take on, on Iran. But uh, I just wanted to ask Patrick that question. Well, Bago, I'm not sure the national defense strategy, national security strategy, national military strategy documents that will be coming out in the coming weeks uh, will sway a lot of people. Um, because we've already seen a lot of previews of what's likely to be in those documents. The Global Post Review was a letdown for many because it didn't seem to make uh, serious adjustments to forces in the Indo-Pacific, and it didn't answer the big question about whether we're going to contest the first island chain or going to move out to the second island chain, which is an internal defense security issue. Um, Similarly, when Secretary Blinken was in Asia in December and essentially previewed the Indo-Pacific strategy, um, he hit all the right points to make a comprehensive strategy. We're going we're gonna to deal you know, with allies and partners. We're going to deal and fight over rules. We're going to have a broad-based economic policy. We're going to be looking for resilience like supply chain security, and we're going to bolster defense. But as we've already hinted at in this discussion today, um, the lack of a trade policy is a huge missing component for U.S. credibility in the region uh, vis-a-vis China. Um, uh, we, we saw in the 2 plus 2 announcement overnight um, the fact that uh, all means, including nuclear, would be used for extended deterrence. That's a preview of what's likely to be in the nuclear post review. So we, we shouldn't be expecting change there, which I think is reassuring to most, most people on both sides of the aisle. Um, but I think whether the defense policy and strategy of the administration can be articulated in a way that is in itself compelling may not be the issue here. Really what we have to do is um, on a daily basis, not only do our civic duty, by the way, at home in terms of standing up for democracy, but we have to be able to deal with and manage a Russia and China that want unfettered ability to muck around in their sphere of influence as they define it. And um, we wanna do that without tipping into a war um, and we're fighting in the gray zone. And, I, and I'm reassured by things like AUKUS as a muscle move and building up the quad and working and seeing allies like Japan and Australia sign a reciprocal uh, access agreement. So at least there are some very specific things that are happening, whether they add up to a strategy uh, is the question that we can only answer in time. Dove, uh, let me uh, bring you in. Uh, last couple of minutes, uh, latest on Iran and where we're going and, and what it uh, conceivably means. Take it away. Well, uh... I think Patrick is onto something here. And, and look at the things he says we've done. They've all been in fundamentally in the diplomatic sphere. We haven't done it in the economic sphere. And a strategy involves everything. That's why the Chinese are doing perhaps as well as they have been, at least until recently. Um, 
one major question mark is what happens with uh, this uh, agreement that uh, the administration is trying to renew with Iran, the nuclear agreement, if nothing happens to it or uh, the Iranians just walk away. Uh, the, the president of Iran, Mr. Raisi, wants to become supreme leader. He knows very well that any kind of agreement uh, will pop the corks in Washington, but it's not necessarily going to make the people in Tehran happy, and it might make it harder for him to become supreme leader. So how do we deal with that? Do we go along with the Israelis and, and support them in a, in a strike against Iran that might not get all the targets they want? And even if they do, they could still re, uh, reconstitute, the, Iran can reconstitute the, the targets quickly and maybe destroy everything Israel's been trying to do to build up relations with its Arab neighbors. Do we do that? What about the sanctions? Do we give them up? Do, if we do that, uh, does that stop the Iranians? Probably not. These are major dilemmas. And then what kind of forces do we have available in the, in the Middle East if we're focusing as well on China and now on Russia? That's what a strategy really has to be about. And simply to say, well, China and Russia are priority, and then something happens in the Middle East and we don't know how to deal with it, um, that's, that's not the right way to go. So uh, we talk about uh, a strategy that's integrated, um, but in fact, we're not integrating. We still do not use whole of government properly. Uh, and until we do, we're not going to be able to figure out how to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, amen, uh, Dove. Uh, very, very well uh, said. Uh, you know, I, I just uh, want to wrap it up. I know we're going long uh, on the on the program, but I just want to point out that uh, you and I were at two extraordinary conferences. Uh, we were at the Reagan Forum, but you and I also were at the Halifax International Security Forum, and it was a great opportunity to see uh, Vladimir Karamurza uh, there. And and he and I were talking about it, and I think he's got it right. I mean, ultimately, if you're not going to target China, uh, Russia's uh, leadership and the cronies and the people around Putin uh, by Magnitsky and them, by making it impossible for them to visit their vacation homes, whether those homes uh, are in the United States or in France or in Switzerland or in London, uh, it, it, that is the only way that you're going to manage to get to him uh, at the end of the day, because um, he also does rely on a, on a circle uh, of, of oligarchs uh, for, for his power. Uh, and I, I think that that, you know, Otherwise, I think almost everything else he, he can adjust to uh, very uh, easily. So you do have to take an integrated, uh, thoughtful, uh, and maybe interdisciplinary approach, uh, given that, um, right, I mean, Russia's gambit, just like China's gambit is, they're not going to go to war over Ukraine. They're not going to go to war over Taiwan, ultimately. Uh, and, and God willing, we can convince them that those are risks that they don't want to take. Guys, thanks so very, very much. Always an honor and pleasure having you guys on the program. Uh, Happy New Year again and looking forward to having you guys back on uh, to help our audience make, make sense of a very complicated and fast-moving world. Thanks so much again. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.